welcome to the 113th episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. Now in our third year of production, and thank you for being part of our growing audience as we start the new year of 2022 with a series of episodes recorded very recently at our annual Movement is Life caucus. Featuring many important thought leaders, the annual caucus was convened in person in November in Washington, D.C., and was a great success, despite the usual COVID-related obstacles. So over the coming weeks, we'll be featuring some of the excellent speakers and workshop leaders who joined us, including orthopedic surgeon and Yale School of Medicine past professor, Dr. Mary O'Connor, from Google, Dr. Garth Graham, from Harvard, Dr. Leonor Fernandez, the singing Dr. Elvis Francois, Baton Rouge Mayor Sharon Weston-Broom, and leaders from some of our Operation Change programs across the country, among many others. And these lively conversations are rich with insights and reflect the mission of the Movement is Life community that is focused on addressing health disparities through a better understanding of the social determinants of health and elevating awareness of the benefits of physical activity in preventing and managing common chronic conditions, particularly in a community setting. So today, we've reunited a stellar panel from our caucus who discussed the subject of shaping American law to reduce health disparities and protect human dignity, including Frank McClellan, law professor emeritus from Temple University and author of the book Healthcare and Human Dignity, Dion Powell from HIV and primary care organization Philadelphia Fight, Cara McClellan from the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, and keynote speaker Daniel Dawes from Morehouse College who talked about racial inequities, tracking the fruit of America's poisonous tree, and his book, The Political Determinants of Health at the Caucus. This discussion is led by Frank McClellan, and it explores the intersections of health law, health policy, and public health. All views expressed are the participants' own. Good afternoon, my name is Frank McClellan and I'm a member of the steering committee of Movement is Life. And I'm pleased today to have three wonderful guests who have different perspectives and experiences. They all happen to be lawyers uh, working in different areas related to both health law and civil rights. So let's start by giving you an opportunity to talk about your background that we should highlight for the audience, and I'll follow up on that as we go along. Uh, so I'm going to start with Mr. Daniel Dawes. We have as our guests Carol McClellan and Dion Powell. So let's start with Mr. Dawes, who's just given a keynote speech to Movement is Life um, regarding the strategies that he has thought about with respect to addressing some of the problems of health disparities. Sure. Well, it's uh, certainly great to be with you all today, and uh, thank you, Professor McClellan. Um, I'm Daniel Dawes, and I have the great honor of leading the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine, and I serve as an associate professor in the Department of Community Health and Preventive Medicine. And um, our work really centers on addressing the underrated issues in health policy, those issues that were long uh, deemed taboo, um, mm -hmm. stigmatized, uh, from, you know, uh, mental health to oral health, you name it. But, but today we're also looking at creating systemic change at the intersection of equity and policy, and that's really been our focus. 
in order to transform, you know, our systems, quite frankly. And you've been quite busy as an author before I move on to the other guests. Uh, could you tell the audience about your current books that have been published and what you're working on now? Sure, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes, so uh, the first book uh, really takes a look at the past, uh, 150 years of Obamacare, looking at, um, you know, this movement to advance health equity in America uh, via public policy. And then the second book now looks at the evidence from those uh, periods, what had been tried and tested um, to get uh, to get these policies over the finish line, to get them implemented, and those that really are favorable to health equity, to get them enforced. And uh, that one is the political determinants of health. So it's looking at, you know, uh, digging a little bit deeper than we have in the social determinants of health movement to figure out what really is at uh, the root, the root cause of these health inequities that we've been seeing and experiencing in, in our country and around the world. Thank you. So let's move on to Kara McClellan, an attorney uh, practicing uh, with the Legal Defense Fund. Kara, uh, why don't you give us a brief description of your background as well as the role of the Legal Defense Fund in representing clients. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be here today. My name is Kara McClellan. I'm an attorney at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which was founded in 1940 by Thurgood Marshall. We are a racial justice um, nonprofit law firm. We work on civil rights litigation in the area of voting rights, criminal justice, economic justice, and education, um, as well as doing policy work and organizing. Our work has been impacted by the pandemic in many ways, as I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, we know that um, black people are more likely to be um, exposed to COVID due to um, systemic disparities, in particular in terms of who are um, essential workers, that black people are more likely to die from COVID um, due to underlying conditions and inequity in terms of access to the healthcare system. Um, and what we work on is the infrastructure issues um, around supporting black and brown communities to help push back against those inequities. Dion, would you just give the audience a brief description of, of your background? Sure, Frank. Thank you all for having me this afternoon. My name is Dion Powell. I'm General Counsel and Chief Legal Officer at Philadelphia FIGHT. FIGHT is an acronym for Field Initiated Group for HIV Trials. We are historically rooted in the fight against HIV and AIDS. Um, over the past years, we have expanded services under the auspices of the uh, Public Health Services Act, Section 330, which gives us the opportunity to provide health care to folks regardless of their HIV status and, most importantly, regardless of their ability to pay for it. We have seven different health centers in Philadelphia, pediatrics, behavioral health, um, a dental practice, uh, primary care, and the Jonathan Lack Center, which is infectious disease. So I think that what we all have in common, and certainly the three of you in your work, is trying to identify and provide evidence of health disparities and trying to uh, come up with strategies to address those. So um, let me let me um, start by with Daniel and ask you what strategy are you currently employing to try and move us ahead at finding solutions to the problems that we have with health disparities on a racial and economic basis? Yeah, I think our, um, <clears throat> our strategy really focuses um, on immediate 
um, things that we can do as well as uh, longer uh, term initiatives. And in the immediate term, what we've been focusing on is data, data collection and reporting, standardizing data. Uh, right now, we what we've recognized during this COVID pandemic is that um, we have this fragmented, disjointed public health data infrastructure, which has made it really difficult to track um, COVID's impact, especially on vulnerable and marginalized minoritized communities. And so for us, uh, part of the strategy has been to um, create a new public health data infrastructure um, to help educate policymakers at all levels, at the local public health departments, state public health departments, and then of course the federal, um, and, and how we can really pull these disparate um, data systems together. Because right now it feels like we are flying a plane with 50 different instrument panels, really more if you include the U.S. territories, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and they don't collect data the same way. Um, they haven't standardized their data collection practice. Sometimes they don't even want to show what the data is revealing on their end, right, which is problematic. And so there are a lot of gaps in data that make it really hard to do the work that we are doing to advance health equity. So that is an immediate uh, project for us in terms of um, uh, the data so that we can use that to tell the narrative. And then longer term, what we want to do is to focus on the existing policies, right, at all levels again, doing an analysis of those policies to understand which ones have continued to drive the inequitable results we see. And then moving forward, we are working with uh, policymakers again at all levels to figure out how they can take an equity lens in the creation of new policies. So those are our strategies um, moving forward. So can you give us an example of, of uh, one issue that you are exploring with, for the data that you think will be helpful in moving us ahead to address problems? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, um, you know, I'll, I'll bring up COVID, for instance, right? Uh, we know that COVID um, isn't going away anytime soon. We, in fact, have folks who are long haulers, right? And, um, and we'll continue to experience all sorts of um, issues moving forward. But for us, um, when we think about COVID, what we recognized early on was that there was great difficulty in trying to get um, public policymakers or even public health leaders to reveal the data. What the data was showing was frightening to them. Um, I think you all talked earlier in your session, um, and Dion, you may have talked about this too, I think uh, you raised this, that a lot of folks looked at HIV AIDS initially because of the data as a white man's disease, right? Quite the opposite was happening early on in this pandemic where the data was showing it was impacting um, communities of color disproportionately, right? And, um, and African Americans um, in particular were having the highest death rate. So, we knew, based on precedent, right, on, on um, history, that it, it was going to have a disproportionate impact, mm -hmm. that we are uh, seeing communities standing on an inequitable uh, foundation, and so of course it was going to reap or wreak uh, havoc on these communities. But how so? Well, no one wanted to disclose that data that was showing, especially disaggregated data by race and ethnicity. And we thought that was very problematic. What could we do to get them to disclose this information? So we created a coalition called We Must Count uh, in conjunction with AARP, 
um, Unidos U.S., which is one of the largest and oldest mm -hmm. Hispanic or Latino uh, civil rights organizations, the NAACP, of course. So I was glad to that, glad that we have Kara on, and um, and other groups really ha that have been anchor institutions in this fight uh, for civil rights and and equity. So uh, together we leveraged the power of collaboration. Mm -hmm to move these jurisdictions, these policymakers, to start disclosing. And we saw success early on in South Carolina mm -hmm. uh, with one state legislator, an African-American gentleman, who fought to get us um, the data. Then we uh, got to Virginia with Richmond, Virginia, disclosing the data. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, you know, at, at first we had to focus on counties, cities and counties to get that data. And then we moved up uh, to get the states, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Michigan became one of the first states to do that, along with uh, Illinois and, and so forth. So when we got that data, mm -hmm. it was even more striking than we thought. Um, what we saw was that 100% um, of folks who had died from COVID early on were African Americans, right? Mm -hmm. In other areas, in tribal nations, of course, there were Native American groups that were dying disproportionately. And um, we thought, oh my gosh, this is really alarming. But some states still didn't want to reveal that data because they were fearful then that perhaps whites or other groups may not take um, this uh, pandemic seriously. So we had to deal with those issues and um, really push the idea of transparency in data uh, early on, and that's been a, a focus of ours since that time. Thanks. So, so Kara, the Legal Defense Fund, of course, is concerned with the underlying um, impact on human beings and citizens of that data. Uh, can you tell our audience what perceptions or what observations you have in terms of the impact of COVID uh, on individuals um, that you have represented or Legal Defense Fund has encountered as a result of, of the COVID pandemic? One of the things that we started um, thinking about and talking about early on was what is going to be the long-term impact on black communities of this pandemic. Um, we know that black children are the most likely to have lost um, a loved one or a caregiver during this time. So what does it mean to return back to school under those circumstances? In particular, um, if you are in a school district that is under-resourced, that is over-reliant on suspensions and expulsions um, for dealing with social-emotional issues and instead of providing services and programming? Um, and, and what does it mean um, if you are in a school um, that, in addition to being racially segregated and under-resourced, um, has also been underperforming academically? Um, how is this going to exacerbate the achievement gap? Um, and so we started very early on um, in our advocacy, reaching out to school districts to prepare for what it means to reopen after this pandemic, to um, address the fact that schools don't um, provide social and emotional supports too often. Um, the reality was that schools have to respond to the fact that students have had their educational experience and the social services that, that schools provide um, completely disrupted for a year and a half. It's un it's unprecedented, right? Um, and so we started that advocacy early. Um, we started the advocacy in terms of addressing learning loss 
um, and, and social services early. Um, we, we advocated for meal distribution. Um, and of course, this is wider than the impact on kids when we look at um, who has been most likely to have to continue working or to be out of work during this time. And when I say continue working, I mean in person as essential workers. Um, and so both at the very local level, um, but also at the federal level in terms of um, what does it mean to um, disperse CARES Act funding and, and other funding in an equitable way, um, given the reality of who has been um, most severely impacted by the pandemic in a long-term way. Data is essential for that. Um, having accurate, disaggregated, um, local, um, state, and federal data um, is essential to that advocacy. And Dion, uh, you are general counsel to an organization that provides um, healthcare services to a broad range of people in the Philadelphia area. I'd like for you to tell our audience how the COVID uh, epidemic has impacted upon your organization's ability to provide care to its patients and what strategies you've taken. Well, like most healthcare organizations, one of the first things that we did was to pivot to telehealth. And one of the things that we learned in so doing is that telehealth is very beneficial to our patient population. And it's also encouraged lawmakers and legislators to take another look at telehealth and to provide adequate resources to organizations like ours to keep those programs you know, in play. And most of us understand telehealth as being the process by which you can receive health care um, without necessarily being in the doctor's office. Obviously, COVID prevented that type of foot traffic at that time. And one of the interesting statistics that we saw very early on is that our HIV patients especially uh, benefited from telehealth. The number of HIV patients that we saw in the year prior was uh, less than what we saw after, given the fact that they now had access to telehealth. Mm -hmm. I think that that reveals some uh, misunderstandings and an opportunity opportunity to unlearn some things that we thought, mm -hmm. one of which is that our population of folks weren't savvy enough with technology or that they didn't have access to the technology that would enable them to take full advantage of telehealth. So telehealth has proven to be instrumental to us continuing to adhere to our mission and most importantly, our ability to provide the services to our patients. Uh, that is on the healthcare side. Mm -hmm. But Philadelphia Fight is an organization that is matrixed. And part of our organization is also to provide educational services and outreach and wraparound services to the folks who need it the most. And in that lane and in that vein, we've also been able to uh, move towards a more telehealth or more, um, a system that would leverage technology. One of our signature programs is Project TEACH. Philadelphia Fight is filled with acronyms. And TEACH stands for Treatment Education Activists Combating HIV. That is a program that empowers individuals who are living with HIV to take control over their own lives and their own health care. There was also a misconception that folks who were HIV positive, especially in the early days of the epidemic, that they didn't have this thirst or quest for knowledge, that they would be comfortable with providers and folks who thought they know to be able to say to them, this is what you should do, and this is, these are the steps that you should take to take control over your own health care. 
And in that vein, our teach classes, most of them have gone virtual. Mm -hmm. uh, we've now expanded the teach paradigm, this uh, paradigm where you educate uh, patients to be able to take control over their own health outcomes to include Project Teach um, Frontline, which is where we encourage our folks who graduated from the Teach program to take the program out into their communities. There's also Teach Outside, which is where we actually go into the prison system and educate folks about HIV and AIDS. There's Latino Teach. There's Faithful Teach, which I'm always excited to talk about because that is a program that empowers faith leaders to learn more about HIV and AIDS and to take that information to their congregations. That's something that's been very critical and very crucial to the mission of Philadelphia Fight. And a good example of that is the fact that our board president is a bishop, Bishop Ernest McNair, who very early on in the epidemic was instrumental in highlighting those issues in his congregation, destigmatizing HIV and AIDS, and most importantly, creating a space for folks who are HIV positive in his church. Because one of the themes or one of the underlying themes of Philadelphia Fight is that you have to treat the whole person. Folks during the beginning of the HIV crisis were broken, and not just from a healthcare standpoint, but faith-based. They weren't allowed to go to their churches. Families weren't claiming their bodies once they passed away from HIV and AIDS. Uh, there is a very uh, disheartening uh, program that we are really trying to advocate for right now, and that is giving proper burials to people who died from HIV in the 1980s, whose, whose remains and whose cremated remains have, have resided in the basement of a funeral home in Philadelphia because the bodies hadn't yet been claimed by their families, due in large part to the stigma associated with folks who passed away during that time. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in terms of the plans to do that, but rest assured there's a concerted effort to giving those folks the dignity, the respect, and most importantly, the sense of community and compassion that they deserve um, by virtue of being impacted by the epidemic very early on. So in summation, there are several programs that we have at Philadelphia Fight, all of which in one way or another have been impacted by COVID, but we have never ever stepped away from the mission and we've done what most other organizations have done and that is to pivot in ways that we can continue to provide those resources to our patients, clients, and consumers. Well, the, the problems are so complex and so important. Um, we could go on forever talking about this, uh, but I wanna, try to bring this toward a conclusion by asking you, uh, given what you have learned so far, uh, Daniel, you made the point during your presentation that we know we can't go back mm -hmm. to normal. Right. Um, what's our roadmap at this point from your perspective? Because you're really focused on policy making, and once you get this data, then, then hopefully we'll be able to do something constructive to address disparities and promote health equity. Do you have any sense of of next steps? Yeah, I, I, well, here, here are my next steps. So um, what we, what I've always argued for is that, you know, we've got to continue to have conversations like this, right, around race and, and place and class and um, not avoid these very challenging topics. Um, I think it's going to be crit critical. We have to understand when the social and the political determinants are at play, understanding 
you know, when they are, because it does matter, right? And um, and then for us, we've we've long been engaged at Morehouse School of Medicine in community engagement. Mm -hmm. um, we've written a book literally on that model, and believe that the people who are closest to the problems and the pain in our society should be the ones who are leading the um, solutions. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to scale that up. I mm -hmm. think um, you know, in other academic institutions with uh, you know other leaders and readers, uh, researchers. Uh, getting them to understand um, why that is important. And then, um, you know, for us, I do believe that health equity is going to begin and end with the political determinants of health. So we've got to understand and, um, and understand these issues because it does matter, right? If we're not familiar with them, how can we correct or repair the past, as I, as I was talking about in um, my talk today? So um, that would be our roadmap. Um, I'm really excited. <coughs> excuse me. Um, with what we see going on right now under the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, we now have, for the first time in U.S. history, an administration that is committed, really committed, to the advancement of health equity. They have centered equity across uh, all of their agencies. They're taken very seriously. And um, I, I think there are so many opportunities for us to really move that needle of health equity to a degree that we've never been able to realize before. Now, you know, how far we can move that, I think it's going to depend on how involved we are. That's very encouraging. Um, Kara, what's, what's your thought in terms of there's been so many problems that you've identified from the school system to other areas of life. Well, what priorities would you you set for you know trying to address them and and uh, what's your thought about the roadmap as we're thinking about infrastructure as a as a country equity equity has to be central in all of that um, in terms of how we're thinking about transportation um, health care schools technology um, addressing the inequities that didn't come out of nowhere and don't have to be the status quo but were purposefully created and structured that way um, has to be a, a priority and the federal government has to be central in addressing um, those inequities as, as, we're, as we're taking on this project of, of infrastructure. Um, I think addressing the housing instability that has been exacerbated during this pandemic, um, addressing the, the child care um, crisis that has been exacerbated by this pandemic, um, and ensuring that there's um, equitable school financing um, to ensure that there's resources and facilities that um, can provide for a 21st century education for children is key. Um, and really supporting healthy communities um, in a meaningful way in terms of climate, um, in terms of access to food, and, and as we've been talking about, all the things that, that structure um, health, health inequities um, and, you know, the, the political determinants of health, as we've been talking about. So, Dion, you get the last word on this. What's, what's the roadmap that you would draw and what priorities would you set? We at Philadelphia Fight are going to keep on keeping on. You know, we are going to stay committed to our mission, to our patients, 
and we're doing that by actively recruiting doctors and providers that reflect the population that we serve. As in-house counsel, I don't have the pleasure of interacting daily and on a, on, a, on a day-to-day basis with our patients. That is something that is exclusively in the realm of our health centers and of our clinicians there. So we're going to continue to support the Dr. Annette Gadebekus. We're going to support the Dr. Mario Cruz's. We're going to support all of those folks who on a day-to-day basis have such an impact on folks' lives. And we're doing that by, again, making sure that they have the resources that they need, making sure that we as leadership behind the scenes understand and recognize the priorities that they set, and most importantly, to support them. Uh, That is what we've committed to doing from the beginning, and that is what we are going to remain steadfast in doing, is to advocate on behalf of the populations that we serve to remain to be the culturally competent healthcare organization that folks know us to be. And under the leadership of our CEO, Jane Scholl, and our community board, we're going to keep on keeping on. I want to thank all of you for a great conversation and sharing your ideas, and we know the audience must appreciate how complex the problems are, but certainly you've offered some ideas that are worth pursuing, and Movement is Life, I think, has benefited greatly from this caucus and its goals of having a multidisciplinary approach and critical thinking about how to reduce health disparities. So once again, thank you all. Thank you you for listening to this episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of Movement is Life. And if you're finding this podcast of value, you can help us reach a wider audience by letting your friends and colleagues know about our regular exploration of health equity. And maybe also consider leaving us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Stitcher. And look out for our next episode This is series producer Rolf Taylor signing off. Until next time, be safe and be well.